Good morning, church family. Um, I would say my name is Daniel and I'm the lead pastor here, but I recognize most of you, so you probably know that already, but I'm up here in front because I just wanted to take a moment to introduce our guest speaker, our guest preacher for this morning. Pastor Ed Marcel is the lead pastor at Terranova and Troy, as well as the senior pastor of the Terranova Network of Churches, uh, which is uh, comprised of three churches here in Saratoga and Troy, New York, as well as in North Adams, Massachusetts. And um, some of you, for some of you, he needs no introduction. It's kind of neat to see uh, the myriad of people who, um, you know, have been here since the beginning of Terra Saratoga and would know Pastor Ed from those days. Some of your heritage goes all the way back to when there was only one church, um, Terra Nova and Troy, and Pastor Ed was your lead pastor in that context. Um, but uh, for those of you who are newer, within the last six to 12 months, you wouldn't necessarily know who he is, and I just want to make sure that you do. Uh, because Pastor Ed has been really influential from day one in the life of Terra Saratoga, being the lead pastor over our church for a time before we transitioned to a model that was more of independent churches, still part of a family of multiple Terranova churches. So much of the DNA of who we are today really comes from Ed. So the things you like, we'll take credit for. The things you don't, you can email him about. And uh, no, I'm just totally kidding. Um, but we're so grateful for the influence that he has had and continues to have um, on our church. And uh, we're just blessed to have you today to bring, bring the word of God to us. So thanks, Ed. Well, I think I'll, I'll get rid of this. I have found at least from the pulpit to pew, Christians are excellent at physical distancing and usually have been even before COVID. So I think you're all safe. We're 20 feet apart on that. We're, uh, as Pastor Matt said, on the third Sunday of Advent, and we've been focusing on the names of God. And I want us to consider how critical names can be to us. It's Romeo, it's Juliet in Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, who'll have that famous line when her beloved comes to her and is explaining his difficult circumstances. They look, if I love you and admit I love you and I'm with you, my family's going to disown me and I'll lose the family name and all the family honor, all the family history. And that's when she says, what's in a name? That which is called a rose by any other word would smell as sweet. And she's really emphasizing that idea of, well, names are just, just containers for something more, that we're just putting a word on the existence and essence of something else. And there's some truth to that. But to a Jewish mindset, a name would have had a fully different value. A name was important. A name to identify something meant that you had some ownership over it. Either literal ownership, you got to name it, like when you buy your dog and you name your dog. I know this popular to say my dog is my animal partner. Nope, he's my dog. Like I have a chair and a car. I bought him and I named him. He's mine. Uh, consider Adam when God creates the world and, and he's showing Adam that you, you're the head over this world. You're stewarding over this and he brings him before all the animals of the world. What does Adam do? What's his job? To name those animals. You, you have authority over them. But there's also a deeper level than just owning the creature that exists or object that exists when you name it. There's an idea of maybe intellectually, philosophically, spiritually owning the essence of that thing that you can say, I, I know how this person is. And maybe in our culture, that's more like when we give nicknames to people, when you really know someone, you know, the guy you call Stinky, you know the story of why he's called Stinky. And you have these, these deeper relationships because of that name. The, the danger is if, better 
do this. Uh, I pace. Uh, the danger is if, if, if the name becomes so special and separate, you may actually lose some intimacy by not having that. And that's, that's what can happen with God sometimes. Because that, that Jewish mindset of naming being ownership led the Jews to say, okay, we want to make sure we never say that name. Because that might imply something or maybe we would even believe something that isn't true. That we own God, either his existence, we own that being, or that we own the idea, the essence that we can get and we have him categorized and all sussed out so we, we got it and can name the name. So, so they took all the vowels out of the name that God gave and made it just the, the consonants, which you might see written as Y-H-W-H, sometimes we'll say Yahweh, but we don't know that it was pronounced Yahweh. The vowels are all gone. They actually took the vowels from another word and stuck them in that tetragrammaton of, of Yahweh so they didn't say the name. And, 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 and if you were reading certain Jewish newspapers today or theology books, you might see G hyphen D written there as sort of a remnant of that same idea of you don't say the name of God because you might say something you don't really mean. Today we're going to read from Exodus 15, 22 through 27. So if you have your Bibles, find your way there. If you're electronically, thumb your way there. Exodus 15, 22 through 27. And we'll talk about three things. First, we'll talk about the name. Then we'll talk about our, our failure to follow him. And then ultimately the faithfulness of Jesus and that name. So let's read this and... Uh, then we'll pray. Exodus 15, 22 through 27 says, Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. And he threw into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elam, and there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we ask as we call upon you that you would give us a humility in naming you, Lord, that it wouldn't be light, that we would realize the expanse of your holiness, how you are infinite, eternal, and how that colors all things of you, Lord that we will spend forever still being excited by what's left to be known of you. So Father, would you give us hearts to desire to discover you through how you've called yourself to teach us. We ask these things today in the name above all names, Jesus, amen. If you talk to an Orthodox Jewish person today and they were talking about God, you know, you know how they would refer to him? They would say Hashem which in Hebrew literally means the name. That's, that's just what they would say, to still have the name be important, but not saying the name. So God took it upon himself in the Old Testament to reveal his names again and again to people, like speaking in analogies so that you could understand something you couldn't own and couldn't grip. He gave them these insights based on these names, and as we piece them together, as we start to stack them and layer them one after another, God becomes to take, begins to take shape. We can understand him by the many names that he gives himself for us, right? Think about some of them. 
uh, he's called a strong tower. And we know that when we need defense, God is who we can go to. He's called a warrior. We know when someone has to fight for us that we can't get through the battles that we're in, God will fight for us. He's called a shepherd, the one who will walk with us, care for us, feed us, provide for us. He's called the, the gardener, the one who's tending this great vineyard, that he will nurture us and help us to grow and prune us and help us to grow. He's called a father, that we're meant to grow up under his tutelage into his image to fulfill what he desires for us. He's called light to give us direction, bread to give us food, and an open door to give us the kind of freedom we have never known without the person of God in our lives. And so piece by piece, he takes shape. And so in today's passage, there, there's a, a piece in the passage that gives us a reference point of where we are in the story of the people of God. In verse 22, it tells us they went by the Red Sea. It's a reminder of the context. The people of God have been delivered from Egypt. Remember where the people of God were for 400 years. They were enslaved. The, the name of, the, of their God didn't seem like a strong tower, and for many, probably didn't even seem very present. And the name of the people of God had been reduced to possession, to slave owned by Egypt, the great superpower of the ancient Near East at that time. So the, there was nothing in their circumstances that made them think, I, we can fix this. We, we can somehow change this great imbalance and injustice that's there. They were slaves in Egypt until the power of God and plan of God showed up in their lives again, and he became their deliverer. And, and in that name, he delivered them through various plagues, all representing, by the way, Egyptian gods that he would defeat to show them their power and the names of their gods didn't count for anything. And they would find themselves being delivered from Egypt with the wealth of Egypt all in their pockets, that they had be beaten this power and are blessed beyond the provisions they could ever imagine as slaves. And you would think, being that the people of God are like us, we would just be so captured in what God most recently did that we wouldn't turn, but they do. They complain almost as soon as they're out of slavery. Look at Exodus 14. I'm going to pick up at verse 11. It says, They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. You got the place, right? Whether it's you know the Bible story or Cecil B. DeMille and Moses is forever Charlton Heston to you. They're now between the Egyptian army and the Red Sea. They know in and of themselves there is no way they can contemplate or act on a plan that will save them from anything but the wrath of the Egyptian army whose possessions they're all walking around with and celebrating that they're walking out with. They've done, sadly, what we can do way too much as the people of God. They've written God out of the story of the people of God. They don't mention God. They mention Moses, and you brought us out here just to die. We were better off being slaves. In their struggles, they, they found themselves in the spot where they tell the story only about them. And they're right. If the story's about them, they're not going to defeat the Egyptian army, and they're not going to be able to cross the Red Sea. That's, that's the end of that story. Too many times in our difficulties, the time where we most need him, we write God out of the narrative. 
and start saying things like, this is too much for me to deal with. I can't take this another day like this. This day was terrible. And all we do is write ourselves our own story about us. And I can tell you this much, given who we are, broken, sinful, limited, mortal men and women, stories that are only about us never end well. They always end displaying our limits, our brokenness, our sinfulness, and our mortality. And these people, on, on the cusp of having been delivered powerfully, find themselves afraid and complaining. In the passage today, the same thing. They were delivered that day. They never saw the Egyptian army again. You know what happens. The chariot's all underwater. Everybody dies. But it says in verse 23, now they grumble. Like bored, irritated children on a long car ride, they're just finding the next thing to complain about. And this time, it's not how are you going to deliver us from Egypt. It's we don't have water. Did you just bring us out here to die? And Moses does something that's different. Moses steps away from these people who've written God out of the story again and prays. Moses is living to write God back into the story. He looks, and of course he knows, Moses can't fix this. The people of God can't fix this. God, we need you to fix this. And it says he prays to God. If the story is just about us, it always ends in ashes and dust. That's who we are. But if the story is God's story, it has to be one of glory unending because that's who he is. But there's a challenge for us. If you only got this, I'd be thrilled today. Don't write God out of your story. Or maybe better to challenge you and me. Find the places where we're getting really comfortable writing God out of our story and start to make those points of prayer and bring God back into our story, even through our places of suffering again. So God makes them this promise. He, he tells them, look, I, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to be your healer. And he brings them to a place where they have 12 springs, source of water for each tribe of Israel, 70 palm trees, a number that says really a lot that's satisfying, right? They're in, they're in a desert oasis. They're in a picture of paradise that God, if, if we follow you, will end up here. But did you notice the promise is conditional? Verse 26 said this, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, then I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. If that sounds easy to you, I'm going to suggest you might not have been a very active Christian for very long. Because I find the more we just try to follow everything that God says, the more is revealed about how weak we are. The more we just try to twist the Rubik's Cube of God's plan and his heart for us to be holy and just put it on ourselves, the weaker I realize I am. It fights against an idea that as individuals we will just stand strong and conquer and makes us the greater thing. Men, women, and children who realize they can't but their God can become reliant. And I think that is one of the greatest mature attributes that a Christian can have, is to be a man or a woman who is reliant upon their God. Because everyone who they see live their life knows their story isn't about them. Their story is about their God. You might think that these people would immediately say, well, we've been delivered twice. Now we should follow every word. But it simply seems not our nature. Our nature is to fail even at these commitments. It'll happen again as they go into the wilderness. Numbers 21, 4 through 9 says this, From Mount Hor they set out by way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God. They kept him in the story, at least, and against Moses. 
Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food, no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people. So many of the people of Israel died, and the people came to Moses and said, We've sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole, and if the serpent bit anyone, he'd look at the bronze serpent and live. So God's brought them into the wilderness, right? This is one of those things that's a classroom for the people of God. It's a place where nothing else is there to distract them. It's a wilderness. Everything else is taken away. Maybe you've had that metaphorically in your own life where it feels like God is just clear-cutting things. He's taking away the things you relied on, maybe the things you identified with, the things that gave you peace, and you start to grumble and think, God, what are you doing? I can't live without these things. Where the point of the wilderness is often to show us the one thing, so nothing else distracts us, that we can see who we are and who God is. It's one of the common mistakes of the wilderness is to think we need and deserve something else and we start lying to ourselves just like the people of God did in this passage. Did you catch the lie? We have no food and water and this worthless food you've given us we don't like. Oh, so there was food. It's just you didn't want what God provided and so you're telling yourself we don't have anything. God hasn't done anything for me because he's not giving me what I want. What he had given them was manna. That miraculous food that apparently tasted kind of bland, but would appear on the ground like dew or maybe like a crunchy frost on the ground. Seems like upstate New York has a better picture of that. Uh, that they would then pick up and have just for that day and be able to eat and survive. But they discounted God's way. And if we discount God's way, there's no arrival ever at what God wants for us. If we discount and despise his way, we will never get where he wants us to go. There's no real growth in that and certainly no healing. So God brings the plagues. He brings the serpents. And they start biting the people. And the people become full of that toxin and many start dropping dead. It's at that point they've realized what they should have known earlier. We simply can't fix this on our own. And it's sobering to watch people who are mortal like them dropping dead around them because of the way they've lived against God. And so they go to Moses and say, please, please, Pray for us. These circumstances are no accident. God isn't unaware of our suffering. Those were all stupid lies and things have gotten worse. And we know only he can save us. He's, he's back in the story, that pivot point of prayer. Let me encourage you, if you have those places where the story seems only about you and how tough the circumstances are, just double down on praying at this point about those things. Don't get bitter in your heart and make it only an echo chamber of your own suffering. I get it. Suffering's difficult. We all go through it. It's, it's just something, though, that God wants us to have him in the story with. There's no more complaining. There's just prayer that goes into this at this point. And God's answer is a, maybe a bit of a surprise. He tells them, make a snake, put it on a stick, and look at it and be healed. It, it might harken back to, uh, wait, when the people made a golden calf, that was really bad, right? Well, they gave it a name. They named it Yahweh. They said, this is God. God isn't saying, worship this thing. He's saying, understand, this is one of my provisions, just a tool for you not to be worshipped, just a thing. It's almost like a really good piece of performance art. Uh, to my eternal shame, I did some really bad performance art in the 80s in some clubs, and fortunately it was before internet and recording was so common, so no one can ever see those pieces of art ever again. But this is like really good performance art. Consider the picture. 
The thing that came in and caused your suffering, that brought pain and death to you, we're going to now make inanimate. You don't need to be terrified of it. And we're going to lift it up under the sky so that you have perspective. This thing, this small bit of suffering, the snake that took all your attention, we're, we're going to put it under the sky, under God's domain to remind you there is someone bigger than your problems slash problems that you have right now. You'll get perspective, and you'll know that God told you to do this. When you're looking with him in perspective, doing what he said, then you'll be healed. He's found a way. Much like with the deliverance out of Egypt, all they had to do was be silent and accept by faith what God had done. But they failed in their unfaithfulness, and, and they would again and again. And God would continue to say, in your failures, I am with you, I will follow you, I will love you, I am the God of second chances. But it didn't end with the Old Testament. You jump into the New Testament, and it continues for the people of God then, just like it does for us today. In the New Testament, it wasn't 12 tribes. It was 12 hand-picked disciples, the first 12 number one draft choices that Jesus has. Now, these people must do great, right? Wrong. Jesus will have to chastise them and correct them constantly. Correct them for being doubters and call them of little faith. Correct them for arguing with one another and jockeying for position of who's going to be the most prominent and powerful disciple. Correct them even for denying Jesus. It seems pretty clear. It's not just for the Old Testament. It's just not just for the New Testament. It's something in the people of God, the brokenness that leaves us wandering really poorly. So what hope do we have if those are the number one draft picks? Well, we have the same hope that the people of God have. Writing God in the story, the God who will be our healer because broken people need a healer constantly. And Jesus brings us back to that story of the snake. There's a guy who comes to him, a Pharisee named Nicodemus. Now, the Pharisees really knew the word. As a matter of fact, they would have counted the number of letters in the Hebrew scriptures. So this guy knew the stories we read from Numbers, the, the accounts we read from Exodus. Nicodemus would have known all those, but he seemed to have a gap about not the word of God, but the God of the word, that he didn't know him personally. His passion for the word didn't translate to a person that he became passionate about. It'd be like someone having a, a whole bunch of firewood that for years, they've been cutting cords of firewood, stacking cords of firewood, seasoning these cords of firewood, and never had fire, never, never knew what really to do with the firewood. That's what happens when we just study the Bible, study theology, but never come to know the person of God. We don't, we don't get the warming blaze that was meant to happen from all this firewood that we've stacked. And in the discussion, Jesus brings up the serpent, John 3, 14 through 16. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The symbol of the cause of suffering that came into the camp, no longer a serpent, but human. That, that we welcomed sin in. It wasn't by a bite, it was when the serpent tempted Adam and Eve and said, you can do life without God. He's not looking out for you, he's trying to restrict you. You should seek your own power, your own pleasure, your own pride, your own possessions, your own pathways. And we became infected. Not with a toxin in our blood, but something like that. With sin. That, that would kill, that would leave us dying or dead as we continued in that life of sin. But God, the healer, provided. He said, just like that story with Moses, 
So you, the source of your problems, who you see as inescapable and too great to ever overcome, will be lifted up high under the canopy of God's sky. And when you look upon that, remember that God is in charge even over you, me, and all of our sins. And that the things that seem so great to you are but a moment to him and he can heal. And that he set all the suffering on this one who was lifted up and all you had to do was be silent and watch. But as all that toxin, all the death of sin went on Jesus, he, he was killed. He died a real death. But remember what God said in the passage this morning in Exodus, that condition in verse 26, if you listen to everything I say, you diligently do it, and you follow my statutes, then you will live, and I'll be your healer. There's only one person who ever did that, Jesus. And so all the sin and death that came from our poison that went on him, it didn't ultimately keep him dead. God the healer restored him to life fully in the resurrection. Look, the story without God ends with our deaths, ladies and gentlemen. There's, there's nothing more we can do. We're here for a minute and gone if that's all our story is. But with the eternal God of life and glory who takes those sins on us, it's a life like his. It's, it's resurrection. We believe in the most incredible truth lived out by the incarnation of God. That's, that's what we wait for and look to this Advent. And I'd encourage you, look, look to the Lord. Be anxious to see him again in your life, to see him lifted up, to see all the problems of humanity our brokenness and division over race, over politics, living on a planet with 27 shooting wars still going on and starvation going on all over this world, which is too much for any of us, singular or governmentally, to ever solve. There is one who lifted up all the sin and suffering that is the object of our problem, man, and brought from that death, life. And I'd encourage you to walk through that in the year ahead constantly. Look, I know 2020 has been the horrible year, right? We've, boy, 2020 did this, 2020. I'm going to suggest it's just a calendar year and probably not actually responsible for all of our suffering. Just, just, just a thought that we may be surprised otherwise, say, oh my gosh, 2021 has suffering too. Uh, we, we just need to be able to continue to look to our Jesus. The suffering's going to be there. We're, we're going to produce more of that. That's, that's who we are. And the byproduct of us living the way we would, living sinfully, is to create more of that suffering but it's small. When you're disappointed over the brokenness of all the people in this world, consider the one man lifted up for all and remember who's over all of the suffering and sin in this world and who has promised to be our healer. Let's pray together. Our gracious and great Father in heaven, we thank you for the mercy that you've given to see us in our sin. The mercy not to despise us in our sin, but to be our friend and our Father. We thank you for the grace of not only not judging us, but giving to us in our sin and death and our disobedience and for giving us the greatest, for giving us Jesus. Father, my prayer for my own fickle, wandering heart and for those men, women, and children in this room and for those who might hear online is for us to be able to see again, isolated before us, the problem. It's us and our sin. And to see lifted high under the canopy of heaven the hope that you've promised healing, that in the death of Christ we can find forgiveness of sin and eternal life, and that all we need to do is look on in faith and remain silent. But for now, Lord, we ask not in silence, but through this time of communion with you, that you would hear our prayer in Jesus' name.
Amen.